0: Uh, well, good morning to you. Uh, now, I, I, I know many of you, but I, I don't normally get to meet many of the uh, first-year students. Uh, they, don't normally let me, they don't normally expose me to students until at least their second year. I we think we've all agreed that is the safest way of having the uh, the four Mike Bird experience. So, uh, for those of you who I don't don't yet know, I look forward to meeting you in uh, coming years or coming semesters. But I'm you know i Mike Bird. I'm a lecturer in theology, uh, New Testament, and more recently um, acting academic dean. Uh, another another t- another quiver to my um, bow, if you like. But uh, I'm i to do a uh, I want I want to do a, a uh, I want to do a a series with you for the next three Tuesdays on the Bible and disability. Um, You might be wondering, you know, why are we doing something like that? Well, I mean, I've never heard a preaching series on anything to do uh, on disability in all of my church life. Uh, But it it is a very important topic. According to the World Health Organization, uh, about one in five people or 20% of the, of the population of the world has a disability of some kind. And th- that means if you're in a parish or in a ministry or anything you do, on average about 20% of people uh, will have a disability. And if, you, and if you're dealing with um, minority groups ranging from indigenous peoples or refugees, that may be even higher Still. So, whatever ministry you go into, it's very likely, in fact, I would say inevitable, you'll be with people who have a disability. Uh, some people are born with a disability, uh, some people are quiet by injury or illness, or else they age into disability. If you read the Gospels, it becomes very clear too uh, that Jesus shows a great deal of compassion and, and, and care and concern for those with disabilities. In fact, if I can give you a somewhat Christological point, I would say that Jesus himself was crucified into disability. Uh, He is tortured, he is wounded, he is killed to the point that his, his body becomes powerless, vulnerable, he loses all sense of the autonomy of his own body. He is literally at the mercy or the lack of mercy of those around him. Jesus is, it is as, as one also said, it is the, the disabled God, in one sense, that we have upon the cross. And yet, it is in Jesus' imperfect, crucified body that we see God's redemptive power at work. We see his love, his, his healing, That the, the beauty of the cross are there in Jesus' body. Uh, More recently, too, the Archbishop of Canterbury hosted a conference at Lambeth Palace specifically on the topic of ministry to and ministry with the disabled. And Bible and disability is is now quite a burgeoning area of of biblical studies. So this is an area that we have all the reason to be interested in. But I have to confess that my interest in this topic uh, is intimately personal. Okay, okay. On this photo, you can see this is me and my son, Marcus. Uh, now, Marcus is on the autism spectrum. He's very high-functioning, but he is a, a very energetic, and uh, he is a boy who requires a lot of parenting. Okay. Probably about 60% of my parenting usually goes just into Marcus helping him, assisting him. There are some things that he is absolutely brilliant at. I mean, uh, like, like he could just walk along a rock pool, he'll stick his hand in the rock pool and pull out a fish. Um, <laughs> he, he's, he's quite... On some things like that, he, he, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of insects and dinosaurs, anything like that. But there are some things that Marcus finds a lot harder, like reading people's emotions. And there's different types of autism. So, some people on the spectrum are really um, triggered and alarmed by la- loud flashes and noises, and they feel very quickly they get overawed by it. But then there are others who kind of crave more sensory um, Input uh, like that—it's it's, kind of like a, a, a computer that that's, that 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 wants to be overloaded, and then when it overloads, they have a bit of a bit of a meltdown, that sort of a thing. So it's quite—it it, it, it can be very fun dealing with Marcus and helping him. But one thing happened to us when we were at a uh, a family event. This was a, a wider family event, and uh, Marcus was out playing on an area of green that was being renovated, you know, but you know, forestly being uh, renovated somewhere. And uh, one family member who was running the event came over and chastised myself and Marcus for doing that and said, you know, know, I know what your boys are like. I think it would be best if you just left. And at that moment, I felt horrible. I felt guilty. I felt powerless. I felt rage. I really wanted to punch this person in the face. Uh, but, but I didn't and feeling, um, I showed self-restraint uh, and I just took my son um, Marcus, I told his mother who immediately burst into tears but for me the worst thing was if this is how my son Marcus is going to be treated amongst his own family what's going to happen to him in the wider world? For me uh, a personal anxiety is, is knowing the fact I'm not always going to be there to help him. And that, that puts the burden on me. I have to train this boy to learn how to negotiate and manage his own disability, his own challenges. I've got to make him resilient. And I've got to make sure his siblings as well are equipped and willing to help their brother out. But it, but it can be very uh, difficult. Um, He can be wonderful and charming and playful, but other times he can be needlessly aggressive. And I'm I'm not, I'm not just thinking about how he functions as a human being in society. I mean, you know, things about employment may be a bit harder with him. Relationships, romantic relationships may be a bit harder for him. And then I've got to think, how do I disciple a boy with autism? How do I lead him to God? How do I lead him to worship, to be a servant of Christ, to, to be led by the Spirit? How do, you, how do you disciple a boy with autism? Or you could say a, a girl with Down syndrome or someone who was in a wheelchair. These are the sort of things why I think it's very important we all have a default understanding of how God relates to the disabled. And of course, the best part of the Bible to look at is what we've just read, the, the, the very first chapter. You know, the image of God. Because we're told there that all human beings are in the imago day. They are in the image of God. That leads to a bit of a question. Oh, what exactly is the imago day? And for those who have done theology with me, uh, or those who did it but just don't remember anything we did, Let me give you a brief recapitulation. Uh, Some think that the image of God is simply our rational faculties, our capacity to engage in cognitive discourse. So the fact that humans possess a rational soul, that is basically the locus or the basis of being in the divine image. We We are rational creatures, if you like. Uh, well, there's there's a few problems with that. First of all, I've read some of your essays, <laughs> and some of you are more rational than others. Would that mean that some of you are, are more Imago Day than thou? Oh, I, I certainly don't think that is the case. And again, if you, if you think of the image of God as rationality, that would entail that God is basically a rational mind, a kind of a, a divine uh, nous, and, and, and that's what we reflect in, in God. But God is more than simply a cosmic intellect. Uh, Indeed, if you focus on rationality, you could argue it diminishes the physical, emotional and social facets of human existence. And what is more, it would imply that those with diminished cognitive faculties, ranging from uh, dementia or anything else, it would imply that they are less in the image of God. So I don't think it's rationality. Well, maybe uh, it is relationality. Because human beings are created to relate to God, creator and creature. And you could point out that it's male and female that humans are in the image of God. So we are in the divine image as we relate to God and as we relate to other human beings. That's why I love watching the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. Because you've got to ask, is he a human being if he has no other humans around? He has to humanize his volleyball Wilson because we're made for relationships. But, there's a few problems with the relational view. The relational aspect may be apparent in Genesis 1, but in other places where the image of God is mentioned, in Genesis 5 and Genesis 9, relationality never comes to the fore. Again, we have to point out that some people are better at relationships than others. Someone like me, who has the emotional intelligence of a rock, (laughs) would quite possibly be less in the image of God uh, than someone who's more um, relationally attuned and extroverted. And I cannot bring myself to say that extroverts are more imago day than I. A third option is to say that the Imago Dei, the image of God, is uh, human dominion over creation. And that's why the first thing that God announces after he's declared in the image of God is to they are subdue the earth and to care for it. I mean, and again, that resonates with the context of Genesis 1, and we could talk about other parts of Scripture where Christ is in the image of God, and, and Psalm 8, and, and Hebrews 2, uh, Again, I can, I can see that, uh, but I think it would be strange to limit the image of God to ecological stewardship and animal husbandry. For a start, we would have to admit that farmers and eco-activists are more in the image of God than some of us. So recycling would literally make you more in the image of God uh, than others. There's also the danger that we identify the imago Day with a kind of doing. Because And then you've got the problem of you're defined by what you do. Your, voc- your, your whole identity can, can, becomes bound up with a certain um, custodianship of the earth. I'm more inclined then to say that dominion is a consequent of the image, not its actual content. So as a result of being in the image of God, we, are, we have this role to care for the earth. I mean, this is indeed the basis of, of a Christian ethic of uh, ecological responsibility, we might say. But I don't think that's the image. So the image is not a substantive uh, uh, facet like rationality, it's not relationality, and it's not dominion then. So what is the Imago Day? Well, I believe it is simply a royal status or a royal identity that God bestows on all human beings. And this is where it helps if you know a little bit of the ancient Near Eastern background of Genesis. Because the word image was largely used of monarchs and kings in the ancient world who represented the people to God and God to the people. Those who were in the image of God were an elite few, like like the pharaoh or the kings of Mesopotamia, or Babylon, or, or any They were the ones who were the image of God and the rest of the people were their servants because the kings were stand-ins for the gods, if you like. But what the writer in Genesis is saying, what Moses is telling us, is that no, all human beings are royal in God's eyes. This idea of the image of God has de- been democratized. If we, that's a word that I may have just made up. Uh, it's, 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 it's given to all human We are all part of God's, if you like, royal family. We are all of His children. Now, I think that's, that's got some serious implications, and the first one is basically this. If all human beings, irrespective of ableness, are in the image of God, that means disabled lives are worth living. Now, I don't know whether you've noticed but within our culture, the attitudes towards the disabled are fundamentally incoherent. Because on the one hand, we have this. We have, a, we have the, the beginnings, the launch of the National Disability Insurance Scheme which I think is a great idea. I mean, I think we've got to pay for it and, and that type of thing, but I think it's a great idea. And I've, I've dealt with this on behalf of my mother, uh, who has a, a certain degree of uh, dementia, and also been dealing this with, uh, for, my, for my son Mark, is helping getting the programs and the support he's needed. So on the one hand, you could say we've got some good things going on, but on the other hand, uh, it seems to be acceptable, if not encouraged, to terminate the disabled in the womb. Some, even down the road, want to um, euthanize disabled infants because they don't c- count as persons. And, uh, and, and there seems to be an eagerness to euthanize any person who is disabled if the opportunity arises. And again, the danger always is that the line between voluntary and involuntary euthanasia can get blurred. Um, The disability activist Stella Young, she was a a comedian, journalist, she was often on the ABC shows like Q&A, and she was usually advocating for disability rights. And I'll never forget the famous Australian ethicist Peter Singer staring at her plain as day saying, you should not have been born. He said it with a straight face. And Stella went on to, uh, She passed away sadly, but she wrote a response on the ABC, uh, basically, you know, c- campaigning for the right to exist. So th- this, is, this is the contradiction we have. It's like NDIS will look after you, but we will literally euthanize you the first opportunity you give us. I could also talk about the um, uh, assisted suicide, the musical. Uh, by Liz Carr, which was playing in Melbourne, they were having the whole euthanasia debate, and they, they kept a seat there every night for Daniel Andrews, the Premier, if he wanted to come along, but he never did. The job of of you people as pastors, as, as, as ministers in your church, will be to defend the flock, to defend the disabled entrusted to your care, standing up for the voiceless and the vulnerable. Uh, making sure their needs are kept for advocating. And I don't just mean liking a few things on Facebook or on Twitter or Nanogram or Instamama or whatever, whatever social media platform you crazy kids are into. This requires tangible effort. Standing up for those who often no one else will stand up Uh, But it also has to be demonstrated in the way you care for the disabled and their carers in your very own midst because it's very easy for the disabled to be ignored, marginalized and disregarded in our own churches. That brings me to my second point. We've seen that the image of God is expressed in Genesis 1 and I think it's a royal status. We're all part of God's, if you like royal family, but another thing we have to consider is how Christ is in the image of God. I mean, to give you a collage of some of the things Paul says, Paul says, uh, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then famously, he says in in Romans 8, those uh, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now that's a compilation of verses from Corinthians, Colossians and Romans, but what it means in brief is Christ is both the archetype and he's also the telos of the divine image. If we are created according to the image of God, that means we're created according to the image of Christ. And our goal of our discipleship is to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's both you know type and the telos, it's the goal of what we are to be. To say that Christ is in the image of God is to say that in him the nature and being of God have been visibly revealed. the invisible God is made known to us in the person of Christ. Now if that is true, it means that salvation, in its fully being worked out sense, means con- being conformed to the image of Son who of being, sorry, let me say that again, it means being conformed to the image of the Son, who was the firstborn of the Messiah's family. Salvation entails a gradual renewal of persons into the glorious image of Christ himself. In that renewal, we participate in Jesus' own sonship, his own imaging, and his own glory. We might say that uh, the human image that we possess is perfected by grace and grows in increasing glory into the likeness of Christ. But here's the implication I want you to get from that. God intends to conform all people, including the disabled, to the image of Christ. Here's the implication I want you to take away. Disabled lives are worth discipling. What we have to do in our churches, among the many things we're doing, is, is, is not just how we be welcoming, affirming and inclusive, How do we speak a word of grace to those who are disabled with their carers? How do we see the improvement of their sanctification, their edification? How do we see them also, not just as objects of ministry, how do you train them for ministry, to do ministry in their own context? And and, and as we come to a close, I want you you to think for this. When, When you picture yourself doing ministry in the future, you know, what is it? Is it you with a, a lovely rural parish and all the farmers and the harvest festival? Do you see yourself in a, in a big church with, with multi-campuses all streaming in to hear you? Do you see yourself as a bishop in the purple? I mean, where... I mean, do do you have these really grandiose? You know, you're discipling these, you know, uni students between 18 and 21. I mean, how do you see yourself in ministry? But do do you see this? Do you see yourself going to a local nursing home to do communion for some elderly folks with dementia? Do you see yourself praying with young men or women or anyone with Down syndrome? who are struggling with an employment, but they want to be Christian wherever they are. Okay? It's one thing to have the, uh, the, uh, the aspirations for all these sorts of things, and we think what ministry is going to be like uh, with this particular group, but if you're going to do ministry to that 20% of people in your church who are going to have disabled, it will be in some cases less glamorous. It will be more difficult more challenging than when you're dealing with uh, you know, people who, who you might call more fully functional or able. But even then, you know, people with various abilities uh, can be difficult or easy in other respects. Do you see, do you see yourself doing ministry? Because if, if the goal of your ministry is to take the people entrusted to your care. Now, whether that's a church, whether that's an AFVS group, or on missions, whatever it is, or a youth group, if your goal is to take this group of people entrusted to your care, to sanctify them, and to present them to God as a holy offering, how are you going to do that with the disabled in your midst? That is one of the things that we have to think about, and that is one of the th- reasons why we need practical and pastoral theology I can tell you disabled lives matter I can tell you that disabled lives are worth discipling but with a little bit of improvisation in practical theology you need to discern in your own context what it looks like to care for and to minister to and to minister with the disabled and on that point there endeth the list thank you very much